When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Policing, Incarceration and Reform, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Deniz Yonucu from Newcastle University. Today, I have the great privilege of interviewing David Price on his highly important new book titled The American Surveillance State, How How the U.S. Spies on Dissent. David Price has made an enormous contribution to the understandings of anthropology in relation to the security state. He is the author of several important books, including Cold War Anthropology, the CIA, the Pentagon, and the growth of dual-use anthropology, Weaponizing Anthropology, Social Science in Service of the Militarized State, and Threatening Anthropology, McCarthyism, and the FBI's Surveillance of Activist Anthropologists. His books shed significant insight into the uses and abuses of anthropology by the security state and urges us, anthropologists, reflect on our ways of doing anthropology. Thank you so much for joining us today, David, and thank you also for your amazing and inspiring work. Oh, thank you so much, Dana. It's very good to be here. Um, It's a real honor to speak with you. Thank you. So I'll go ahead with my first question. Um, On the one hand, this book reveals a very dirty history and present. You show how the dirty tricks and invasive techniques of the surveillance state work to suppress dissent. But on the other hand, what you do is also an act of honoring those who were targeted by the surveillance state. You bring their voices and their work back into the world, and I found that extremely inspiring. So if there's a social amnesia about surveillance, which you mention in the book, there is also a social amnesia about the surveilled. In that sense, what you do is an important memory work, a work of memory as resistance. But of course, what you do in this book is more than that. So could you please tell us what made you write this book? And as an anthropologist, how have you developed an interest in surveillance? You know, I got into doing this sort of research very much accidentally, sort of a step at a time. Um, I first started using the Freedom of Information Act to have records uncovered, uh, you know, 30 years ago, um, three decades ago. And I had no idea what I was going to find when I started Uh, I just did very broad requests on anthropologists because I was very interested in, um, I like the way you talk about this as sort of a memory project of of seeing what documents existed about anthropologist engagements with the national security state. And, you know, when I started, um, I was really looking for records of anthropologists probably working with military and intelligence agencies, uh, you know, for throughout my graduate career, I'd heard stories um, about instances where anthropologists had been approached or willingly cooperated with the CIA or FBI. 
And I was just curious if I could find anything. And I, I, I did find records relating to that, but I found this whole other universe I didn't really know about. I found anthropologists who had been per persecuted in the 1950s uh, during anti-Marxist, anti-communist purges in the United States. And I had not known there would be the level of records I found of, of that sort of surveillance um, and, you know, from there, I started being much more interested in public intellectuals and, and other characters, the people who, who show up in the American surveillance state, uh, and looking at the ways that these surveillance operations worked, um, started raising questions about why is it people in the United States on the political left who have so much more of this surveillance than uh people on the political right, you know, with all these fascist and neo-fascist uh, groups that are out there that, that have some surveillance, but they're not really targeted and excluded from public discourse in the, in the same way as, as others. So this, this is a memory project of something that when I started, I don't think I knew there were things that we should be remembering that, that were here. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really, really great. And what you do is, as I said, extremely important. Um, I just want to go back to the targets of surveillance you briefly mentioned. So your books, your book reveals, and books also actually, not just one, but the other ones as well, reveal a lot about the surveillance of the anti-racist, anti-colonial anti and Marxist scholars in and outside the United States by the U.S. security state. So I found it really extremely interesting and depressing also how the U.S. surveilled critical scholars, not only inside the U.S., but also outside the U.S. And, uh, and you show the FBI's attempts to silence and marginalize critical academic voices. Would you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I, I think the people who very early on uh, raise questions, you know, still in the Cold War, about uh, post-World War II independence movements, um, people who were talking what we now think of as anti-colonialists, people like Edward Said, people like Ruth First, you know, both of which are people um, in this book who I talk about their FBI, FBI files in here. Um, they were asking very simple questions about autonomy and freedom uh, and U.S. hegemony, um, and they were doing it both in academic spaces, but also in activist spaces. And I mean, that's that's one of the things I found in in looking at uh, activists during the McCarthy period, during the 1950s in the United States, was there were plenty of Marxist anthropologists or, or anthropologists who were citing Marx, but were doing so in sort of a salon academic intellectual way, but they weren't engaged in political struggles and the FBI mostly didn't care about them. Um, they would, they would monitor, they would know they were there, but if they were just doing that sort of work, they weren't that interested. But, but what really mattered was activism. Um, and it mattered so much that in the end, it didn't matter if someone was a Marxist or a socialist or a communist in the fifties. What mattered is if they were speaking out and organizing people on issues of race and economic inequality. And the, the same thing with, um, scholars that I write about who were engaged in critiquing colonialism, uh, critiquing, you know, inequity. One of, one of the people I write about is, uh, Gene Weltfish, um, who was an anthropologist uh, that in the 1950s lost her job at Columbia University. She'd been one of Franz Boas's students. She'd been very active in uh, critiquing race and racism in the United States. And she gave this really remarkable paper at a conference in 1949 um, that that brought a lot of issues of the Cold War to the fore, and she was very, you know, explicitly critical of uh, the U United States stance blocking independence movements after World War II. You know, this very cru crucial moment uh, for the the reformation of the world in all sorts of ways. 
Um, and just the fact that she would do this uh, had intense FBI surveillance, uh, intense enough surveillance that the the best existing copy of the paper that she gave um, comes from her FBI file because they were there monitoring her as she was talking about um, this very important topic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was really surprised to see how the FBI kept even uh, the conference papers and they are um, unintentionally contributing to, contributing to this memory work that you have been doing. So because they kept those files, uh, you can share uh, their writings with us. So that's that's really, really amazing. Like it's kind of an archaeological work as well. So... Um, in the book also, you underline the connection between surveillance and harassment and show us how surveillance is not just limited to information gathering, but goes well beyond information gathering activities. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? What are the constructivist, what's the constructiv- constructivist role of surveillance? Yeah, the, uh, the, I think there are several answers to that, one of which is with forms of FBI surveillance, for example, where the bureau itself um, lets others know that someone is being watched. It really alters the world for these people. A very common thing I've found in the FBI files um, I've had declassified and released is uh, when someone comes up on the FBI's radar, Uh, and it could be for very innocent reasons. It could be there is a some member of the public writes the FBI a letter. Uh, this is very common in the 50s and 60s and says, I'm very suspicious of this person because of the way they talk. And the FBI would open these investigations and they would do things like go and talk to neighbors. Um, they would show up in academic departments and talk to everyone. They would just go down the hall and do this. And Uh, it didn't matter that they didn't find anything, which was most often the case. What that does is it it really marks the individual as a marginal person. Um, and in many cases, it could lead to changes in their career, uh, all sorts of bad outcomes just from being investigated. So, uh, you know, there are forms of surveillance where those doing the surveillance want you to know that it's happening. Uh, and that can have all sorts of all sorts of impacts. It's it's much more difficult to look at the impacts on people where they don't necessarily know um, that that there's surveillance going on. Um, you know, because if you don't know, you don't know in in in, ter- in terms of those sorts of things. But um, that doesn't mean it's not oppression. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, having the state look into individuals' politics, uh, especially when they're engaging in legal activities of, of dissent, which is what most of these things are that are going on, uh, that, that has a, a huge impact. All it takes, though, is for one instance of somebody finding out uh, that they are under surveillance and they start double thinking, they start guessing everything they're doing. It's very, there in some cases I could find, uh, maybe hints in archives or not just hints. I could find expressions in letters where they're writing other people, uh, and they start pulling back from the sort of work that they're doing. And that's, that's one of the real dangers of this. Um, it might be, perhaps it's less of a danger today where, You know, we're at the levels of surveillance we now know from the the Snowden uh, documents, you know, that were re- released and such that uh, on some level, there are traces of everything we're doing all the time. Uh, and that's both extremely oppressive, but it's also so numbing that I, I don't know if it causes people to hold back in the same sort of way it would have uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this spectacle of undercover police surveillance, I find it interesting, um, very much, very interesting, actually. My own work also, uh, I work on policing and surveillance in, in Turkey, and I just realized that informant or undercover police activities are not just limited to information gathering, but sometimes the undercover police actually reveal themselves. And that I find anthropologically extremely curious uh, and important. I think anthropology's contribution also may come from this productive 
force, uh, understanding the productive force of surveillance. Um, but not just the security state. So because now you mentioned Snowden and the recent revelations, you underline the entanglements of corporate and government surveillance in the book. But you also argue that surveillance capitalism is only a part of the story. So what's your critique of the surveillance capitalism? What's the limits? What are the limits of the surveillance capitalism? Well, here here in the United States, it's interesting. Um, there have been many sort of critiques and populist uprisings against forms of surveillance historically uh, in, in the United States, uh, especially when it's the government that's doing it. There's this strange American uh, reaction where if a corporation is doing some high level of surveillance, maybe people shrug their shoulders and go on. But when they find out the government's doing it, then they get they get very upset. Uh, and that's part of American culture. Uh, it, it logically doesn't make any sense. Um, it, it may do with sort of embedded cultural attitudes about the acceptance of capitalism as this warm friend or, <laughs> you know, or, or, or something. I, I don't pretend to understand why, but I, I know it has, it has huge implications because uh, I, think, I think one of the shocking things about these Snowden revelations that there was, in some sense, we found out documentation for what many of us suspected. Uh, when I say many, maybe most Americans on some level suspected was going on, that, that things like Someone's keeping a record of the phone calls, uh, maybe not the conversations, but who people are calling, uh, that, there, that there are these trails of everything that's, that's going on out there. Uh, and for me, one of the surprising things was how upset people didn't get. There was sort of an outrage for a very short amount of time, and then people went on. But on, on one level, much of what was being revealed that the government was doing are things that corporations have very openly been doing for a long time. I mean, here in the United States, uh, it's any chain store that you go to, a grocery store, a appliance store, anything like this. They have, of course, these, you know, um, customer clubs that you can belong to and you get might get a 10% discount or something from shopping. And so people are very willingly uh, signing up for these sorts of things. Well, now we know whether you sign up for it or not, um, unless you're paying in cash, in some sense, all of this sort of surveillance and uh, metadata is being compiled uh, to a point where I think most people are numb. Um, they figure there's nothing that can be done about it, that this metadata is being compiled in all of these different ways. And there, there is this merging, I think, of the corporate capitalist state uh, and of the surveillance state, the political-based surveillance state. And I think I think people probably mostly don't like it. They think there's very little that can be done. Uh, but there is this merging in terms of the trajectories where both of these bodies are going. And of course, there's great overlap with capitalism in the American state. So it, in some sense, it it, it makes sense. Um, you know, I did, I do write a little bit about what can be known, and I suspect there's much more of this that we don't know about the intentional overlap of the capitalist surveillance and, uh, and corporate profits. I mean, there are some instances where we know that, um, U.S. intelligence agencies leaked intelligence, privately leaked intelligence information to American corporations to help them in global uh, commerce engagements. And we don't know the size of this, right? We just have these few instances where it, we can be pretty sure that it happened. Uh, but I would not be surprised if somebody comes up with a large document dump that shows this is much more common than, than we can document. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I think uh, now listening to you, uh, we, may, we may even say that uh, because you, in the book, you question the normalization of surveillance and you say that it hasn't been always like this. 
So in the United States, there was this great tendency, strong tendency against government surveillance. And then you say that this has changed. And you also argue that there's there's a generational thing in this. And perhaps the corporate surveillance contributed to the legitimization and normalization of surveillance. Yeah, I I think it definitely did. Um, You know, yeah, there's a part of the book where I talk about the the new surveillance normal, how this shift came about. And there there are some really interesting survey data about uh, how opposed, <clears throat> excuse me, how opposed to things like wiretaps, uh, the FBI, uh, the public has been for great periods of time. And then there's this moment even in the late 1980s where, uh, you know, the internet didn't really exist. Um, and there was a news story that came out that, uh, the, the spreadsheet company, it's the company that Microsoft, uh, you know, copied in terms of making Excel uh, that was called Lotus. And Lotus revealed that they were going to sell a box set of CD-ROMs, you know, these clunky disks that would be a phone book for the entire United States. Uh, And it would simply take all the information that, that existed in paper phone books that existed at the time. And it would put, you know, my name, David Price and, uh, my address and my phone number, and that would be it. And the public was so outraged that this was a invasion of privacy uh, that they dropped the product. And of course, it would take a second to Google any of this information now. Uh, and it, there's such a different uh, public attitude that's that's come with this. And I do think, yeah, that the the corporate surveillance has just become so ubiquitous that it it has contributed a lot. Uh, to the numbing of us. But still, when Americans find out about government surveillance programs, they get upset in a very different sort of way, when I think they should be upset about both. Yeah, yeah, that's really curious, really, really interesting. And I guess the war on terror played a role in this as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, the uh, this piece of legislation called the USA Patriot Act uh, was rushed through very quickly, uh, certainly with I, you know, within 90 days of uh, the, the the attacks of September 2011, or sorry, 2001, September 11th, 2001. Um, very quickly, this massive piece of legislation came through, and really, what it did was it removed safeguards that had been put in place very intentionally in the 1970s. There was this this moment in the mid-1970s after Watergate where there were hearings in the the Senate by the the Church Committee. Frank Church, a senator from Idaho, ran this impressive committee looking into the activities of the CIA and FBI. Uh, And then Otis Pike uh, in the House ran a committee And out of these came the first congressional oversight of the CIA and FBI because they were doing illegal political acts against American citizens uh, here, and and firewalls were put up. There were rules about what the FBI could do in terms of political surveillance. There were rules about the CIA uh, preventing them from doing domestic activities, and suddenly, after 9-11, very quickly, this massive piece of legislation came through that not only removed many of those oversights and made it possible for these organizations that had abused, uh, you know, abused these sort of investigations in the past, not only did it allow them, but it gave sort of superpowers uh, to local police agencies to engage in their own surveillance activities. There's this moment where uh, you know, 9-11, when these attacks happened, I remember the next day reading this very short Chomsky piece that that was put up on Counterpunch, where he says very clearly this very prescient thing. And he says, you know, a horrible thing has happened. Uh, we don't know who did it. 
because um, no one knew anything the day the day after. We don't know who did it, but here's what we do know. This will be a gift to the oppressive forces on the right that are going to want uh, to come after us and limit our freedoms and et cetera, et cetera. And it was, it was exactly right. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also just to... Um, I'm just trying to elaborate more on the on this generational shift. In addition to the, I mean, war on terror is definitely a great shift. And before the war on terror, the enemy was the communist enemy. And in the U.S. public discourses, the communist enemy itself was associated with the surveillance state. And you you underline in your book that like how how the how the socialist world is demonized as this like Orwellian surveillance state, whereas the United States is the liberal state, even though the FBI was using the similar tactics uh, which were used in the communist countries. But with the erosion of the communist enemy, I guess, and its association with surveillance, I guess surveillance began to be turned into this like really normalized corporate thing and the and the association with surveillance and the decline of the civil liberties is is it became disconnected from one another i guess yeah no that's that's very well put i think that's exactly the trajectory that happened is uh you know many Many of these similar techniques that we saw under McCarthyism we saw reborn. Uh, with new technologies, you know, new technologies that make the surveillance dream real. You don't have to, you don't have to send people out uh, on a cold November, rainy November night to sit in a car and write down license plates at somebody's house where they're meeting to talk about getting rid of racial segregation in the schools, which is what happened in the late 40s and 50s uh, when anthropologists worked on these uh, campaigns to get rid of segregation in school. The FBI would send these people out on these miserable nights to write down license plates, and then then it would take them hours to figure out whose cars they were and things like that. Um, No, the, the spies can sit at home drinking coffee by the fire and just bring up, uh, traffic cameras. Uh, you know, you're, oh, well, you're, you're in the UK right now, right? Um, you know, more, <laughs> more cameras per person, uh, on earth in terms of these things. We, we see this play out on these, you know, amazing police procedurals, uh, where, where you see this stuff happening, but, you know, this technology was just on the edge of really taking off um, around 2001 here in the United States. And with the terror scare, uh, it acted very much like the Red Scare uh, of the 50s, where anybody who could claim what they were doing was had to do with uh, terrorism. There were very few questions asked. It was adopted and people didn't really ask the right questions about what the real threats were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it in my classes uh, as well. So I teach about surveillance and I show them how surveillance does not prevent crime, how surveillance does mm-hmm. not prevent, quote unquote, what is associated with terror, like it's um, how the pervasive surveillance technology is actually limits the space for free speech, etc. And then at the end of the day, my students agree with me. They they totally agree with me to a certain extent. But then they say, like your students, uh, you mentioned in your book, they say, but at the end of the day, if this is going to prevent another terror attack, then I'm <laughs> going to sacrifice all my liberties. And I can't find any word to respond to their uh, their statement immediately. I just feel so depressed. But I assure you, it doesn't prevent terror. But you still want to believe that. 
<laughs> it's it is the irony of our age. Yeah, that it doesn't matter that you say, well, you know, well, the the uses of all this surveillance when a crime does occur uh, is sometimes it's possible with a great deal of work to figure out what happened afterwards. But in terms of prevention, it's just it we don't live in that world. And that's the scary thing, right? As we all know, uh, this sort of, you know, Philip K. Dick minority report urge that the state has to be able to predict crime before it happens. And you see people increasingly talking about this, uh, like, like we'll have these precogs who, using computers, can take all of this data uh, and make people suspects of crimes before anything has happened. Exactly, exactly. And I even show them, so going back to your point on the labor-intensive surveillance, labor-intensive surveillance also continues at one level. For instance, in the United Kingdom, the, um, there's been, it's been proven that undercover police agents infiltrated in socialist organizations, even Green, Greenpeace, and uh, married with, uh, with activists, made kids with activists, and then suddenly disappeared from their lives. So that's also, I think, the um, the entanglements of human and non-human agents of surveillance is is extremely curious too, and the continuation of the labor-intensive surveillance at certain levels as well. And then I think, in that sense, your book is extremely important because you also argue against these claims that everything has changed radically. But you say that we have to look at the continuities between the present and the past. And that we easily forget what had happened in the past. Yeah. Uh, well, while this book in the opening chapters does discuss, you know, some of the technological developments that have happened in the last 20 years and, and where all this is heading with metadata and things like that, it really isn't the focus of the book. You know, it's really not the argument of the book. And and I even say, look, I can't tell you what the next technology is gonna be. We can we can sort of feel how bad it's going to be and what sort of things. And, you know, you can go completely sci-fi with implants or whatever you want. You know, I have no idea uh, where it's going to go. I don't really even know uh, really the extent of the technology right now. But what I try and do in the book is talk about this historical trajectory of we know uh, in America of who has long been the targets of these things. And it's the critics, it's critics of capitalism, it's critics of, uh, or, or proponents of people trying to uh, work on the public good rather than the capitalist good of things. It's people who are speaking up for human rights. It's people uh, that are opposing the growth of the military industrial complex. It's, it's people who are critics of capitalism. Um, and, and I think, I think this is important. Um, it is also important to, to know what the technologies are and things like Stingray, right? These, these incredible programs that are out there. Um, that isn't my strength. I mean, I know those things exist in things. If, if I have a strength, it's thinking about where the lens is focused, where the microphone is focused, where the surveillance is focused. And I think that tells us important things that may help us um, understand who's next. And if uh, everything we know suggesting that, uh, you know, this stage of capitalism is so out of control, it's looking to kill the planet in terms of global climate change, I think we can assume people, scientists uh, and activists and scientist activists and others who are speaking up, I'm not even talking about people taking direct action, um, people speaking up and telling us what's happening um, are going to be the focus of these sort of campaigns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, so... We know, I mean, you say that, I mean, you know, and also you show in your work how the activists are targeted by the surveillance state. But I was going to ask you, are they targeted equally? What kind of activist work the surveillance state finds the most challenging? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I would, you know, I would definitely for the future look for people dealing with climate change as as being there. But but also, um, you know, the military industrial complex here in the United States, it's it's, of course, completely out of control uh, where the U.S. spending is uh, equivalent to what the next 12 nations, 10 or 12 nations, whatever the number is on there. It's, uh, it's extraordinary and it's sacred, uh, here, like Congress just keeps increasing it while they talk about budget crises and not having money to pay. So, uh, I think anybody who can get the public ear on those things, uh, I would assume they're coming under some, some sort of surveillance. Uh, but, but the right wing doesn't, doesn't have the same. It's, it, you know, it, it is interesting. We have, you know, we have these, uh, fascist and neo-fascist groups, uh, that are operating pretty openly. And some of these people are coming under surveillance, right? Once they cross the line and start engaging in violence, um, these right wing groups, I do think the FBI and other organizations look into them. For me, uh, I have all sorts of questions of why is it that once they, that it takes them engaging in violence where they become part of these surveillance campaigns and, you know, these people who I'm writing about uh, in here, uh, I want to say none of them, maybe almost none of them um, are associated with, uh, with these violent campaigns and get these intense campaigns of surveillance that often lead to harassment that are going on there. So it's, it's not the same sort of standard uh, that's mm-hmm. that's going on. Yeah, and, and I would say I, I would say uh, because these groups are aligned with the basic premises of the economy, they're fascist, uh, and it's an extreme uh, form of supporting the the capitalist narrative. But they're at least going along with it in a certain sense, whereas people who are questioning capitalism's destruction. Uh, of our world are the ones who come under focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, you mentioned in the book that FBI is there to protect the structures of the racial capitalism, capitalism and racism, the oppressive structures. So these fascist groups, they don't go against those oppressive structures. They are actually defending those structures. So why would they be targeted by the FBI, as you mentioned in the book also? so. Yeah, it's not about what counts as crime is um, is rather ideological. Um, I am between two questions actually. So before the pessimistic question, uh, I just maybe um, more optimistic one, though I'm not quite sure how optimistic that is. But um, you give examples from the post-Nazi era Europe to show that how people understood what surveillance, what what government surveillance meant and how it contributed to the Holocaust and the massacres and genocides of large numbers of people from various backgrounds. Uh, Can you please elaborate on those uh, historical examples, anti-counter-surveillance or anti-surveillance practices or how people reacted against their governments? Yeah, there's there's to frame this in an optimistic way, right? Uh, the 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 possibility of hope out there because you know these can seem like hopeless times, uh, and and one of the th- places where I I find hope, and I get this I get this from Laura Nader. Um, she's you know an anthropologist who has a lot of hope uh, in all sorts of ways, and I've heard Laura say many times, or read her say this. Uh, that history is full of change. Uh, and so wherever you are, you have to remember um, none of this is going to last. Now, that doesn't mean it can't get worse, right? That's <laughs> that, that's often that's often the case. <laughs> and with surveillance, it sort of seems to head that way. Uh, but there are lots of historical examples of an aftertime. And I think that's the important thing, is you have to have something fall apart. Um, that there's always an aftertime, and we hope it's an aftertime where we're all still alive, and you know, the, it's not a zombie apocalypse or something like that. Uh, 
But there are examples such as the one you mentioned uh, in post-World post War II Europe, uh, where there were several instances. I know the, the case for the Netherlands, uh, where um, you know, after the Nazi occupation, the way, and I, I, my brother lived in the Netherlands for, for 14 years. And I remember being over there in the nineties and him showing me his phone bill. And it was really cool because, it, you know, in the old days, um, when people had landlines and there weren't cell phones, you would get, uh, here in the United States, you would get a phone bill and it would have every long distance, because you were billed differently, phone number on there. So if I called my parents who lived in a different state, it would show that I their number and that I talked to them for 90 minutes or something. Um, and, and it was done so that you could review the charges and these sorts of things. Well, after uh, the Nazi occupation in World War II, the Dutch uh, made it impossible to track the numbers. And, and instead, you had zones. So if you were calling a place, I don't know, you know, a hundred kilometers away, um, it would show how long you talked and, uh, you know, what the charge was for that. And this was a very intentional, uh, depersonalizing of data so that it couldn't be used because abused because it was abused by the Nazis. They would capture someone, uh, and figure out they were with the resistance, let's say, and then they would just go through their phone bill and pick up everybody that was on there. So uh, there, there are, uh, you know, in, in, in Germany, uh, there were changes that were done after the collapse of the East German state and things like this. So uh, there, are, there are instances in an aftertime. And the aftertimes don't have to be after a war. They don't have to be after some sort of occupation or things like that. They can be like in the mid-1970s in the United States um, with these hearings I mentioned, the church hearings and mm -hmm. the Pike mm -hmm. hearings, where you had congressional inquiries in the post-Watergate era where people, the public was outraged uh, in terms of what had happened, and there were firewalls that were put in place. I don't know how we get there, um, you know, the first 24 hours of reading the Snowden uh, documents, uh, I had hopes that people would get upset and people were upset for about eight minutes and then, you know, went back to watching football or whatever it is that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really interesting. I think um, one of the effects of this like old pervasive surveillance it doesn't necessarily target, of course, it always targets specific populations, but also now targeting the entire body of the population contributes to its normalization, I guess. If everyone is targeted, then it's fine. If it's happening to everyone, then it's fine. There's no escape from this and it's fine. Perhaps I'm just thinking together uh, with you right now. I think there's there's been a lot of different factors which contributed to this, uh, this normalization, more than one, multiple factors, definitely. It would be interesting to do a comparative study because in Germany, for instance, still surveillance is very much criticized and not normalized and legitimized. But whereas in the US and the UK, it's totally normalized and seems to be part of the society, social relations. So I will go back to my pessimistic question now, but also this would give a sense of my reading of the book, I guess, because in the book, I, I was, my feelings were going between optimism and pessimism, pes pessimism, because I was feeling very depressed reading about all these FBI files and how pervasive the surveillance is. And then I would read no writings, you you share them, uh, you share, for instance, André Gunder France letters, like pieces from this uh, from the critical academics and um, authors, writers, writers, artists' writings. And then I see how people resisted these uh, mechanisms and continue to do what they believe in. Uh, and this didn't uh, stop uh, them from going against the security states or capitalism's or racism's interests. So that, 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 that part I found extremely inspiring and uh, empowering. But 
going back to the pessimistic question. So you say that uh, you have a rather, I mean, you already mentioned this, but you have a rather pessimistic view of the future in relation to surveillance. And you say that most Americans haven't learned from past governmental abuses of surveillance. And you also show how even left-wing progressivist groups call for more surveillance. So what's the conditions of possibility of this? How would progressivists even are seeking out for more surveillance when they feel that they are threatened? Yeah, good good question. Uh, here, you know, here in the United States, uh, the range of what passes for progressivism is, of course, very strange. Um, there are there, uh, in, you know, since the Trump uh, administration, uh, you know, there's a group of progressives. I think of them as being the MSNBC, you know, which is a channel uh, left uh, that seems to have put an incredible amount of faith in the FBI uh, to investigate um the, the neo-fascist right here in the United States, as if they're going to save us and come along. And I'm, of course, not opposed to the FBI doing their job and, and doing these things, but believing that this is, you know, who's going to solve these sorts of problems or the, or the calls for increased surveillance on everyone uh, to try and detect who these fascists are. Um, is a disturbing part of the American left uh, that, that that's out there. Um, I don't know what it will take for for people to, you know, I don't want to use the word wake up, uh, but to 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 get upset uh, about the, this level of surveillance that's out there. But it it's it's possible. Uh, I'm not overly optimistic uh, because this has happened so steadily without people getting upset. Uh, it it could be. I mean, we know how the contradictions of of history are very hard to sort of predict before they happen. Uh, but it could be something as strange as revealing normal levels of surveillance that are going on to everyone uh, are happening to people on the right. And they get upset uh, and they start getting concerned about civil liberties. And you you can see elements of this happening when there's a, a change in administration. I mean, once the you go from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, it doesn't matter that the policies on surveillance have remained, as far as I know, essentially the same. Uh, you see people on the right um, writing things where they're concerned that maybe their political be- beliefs are being monitored and things like that. And it, it could be that something like this uh, pushes for a change that's actually needed and, and things like that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, well, in, I... In Europe, the main opponents of uh, surveillance are actually right-wing groups. They are extremely critical of surveillance in Germany, for instance, the right-wing yeah. group. So, yeah. And... It, it could be out of this that this happens. Of course, that could happen. And then, you know, neo-fascist groups start getting more neo-fascist because they're not being watched and things like that. Uh, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's technology is, of course, becoming more embedded in every element of our lives. And it's hard to imagine of. Uh, this being rolled back, but of course it's possible. It's possible that legislatures um, start to t- uh, demand sort of more control, start getting worried about metadata uh, and how it's being used. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on the optimistic side <laughs> this time, you say that uh, one major lesson to be learned from these FBI files is simply that activism matters. And this is a simple but important lesson you add. I guess we can also add critical academic work matters as well. Yeah, I I really believe that, that, that just the presence of the FBI monitoring people who were talking about issues of equality. Uh, who were fighting for unions, who were fighting for uh, equal pay for equal work, for fighting against racism. Um, the fact that they were under surveillance for engaging in these noble causes, legally doing these things, shows that they were a threat. 
you know, a threat to a system of inequality uh, that, that was there. And while part of, you know, revelations of surveillance can lead people to pull back. I have people all the time ask me, it's like, aren't you afraid about writing about these things and, and, and that? And I'm not. Um, right now, we still have freedom to engage in these sorts of critiques. We may be under surveillance. We may not be. We don't really know. Uh, but we shouldn't worry about it. We need to uh, to push forward on these things and and fight for the sort of changes that are here. No, definitely. And a lot of people are doing that also. They are not stopped by surveillance. So my final question is a more general uh, about the discipline. I was wondering what you think is distinct about the anthropological approaches to surveillance. How can anthropology contribute to the studies of surveillance? Because anthropology yeah, I like is used by the surveillance state and the security state a lot, as you show, as your work, uh, your book show very powerfully. So my question is then, how could anthropology contribute to the development of I, I like I, yeah I like this I like this question um, you know anthropologists have been studying the state for a long time you know over a hundred years certainly um, with all sorts of different theories whether it's looking at sort of a totalizing state or the uh, uh, you know how state power has always worked and in some sense um, for a long time, anthropologists have looked at how states monitor their populations. Uh, you know, there's there are archaeologists that have been working on these sort of uh, questions with pristine states and such for a long time. And I think anthropological, uh, the, the variations of anthropological studies of the state are really useful in terms of looking at this. Um, it doesn't have to just be limited to notions of a Foucaultian panopticon and things like that. Um, whenever you're thinking about state power, if you can add an analysis of what the state is doing to monitor and make legible uh, the, the people uh, that are living under this state, I think it's, I think it's really important. I think anthropology has a lot to add to this. Um, insofar as we've been sort of obsessed with the state for a long time, and this is uh, an outgrowth and extent. We've been really interested in technology and how technology and culture go together. So I think there's a lot anthropology brings to the table, uh, including a, a, a special type of anthropological imagination for thinking about surveillance. Thank you, David. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the interview and thanks again for your amazing work. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. It's been a complete joy. Thank you so much for doing this.